God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this place, for this group. We thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit in each one here. I pray that you continue to move in us, to draw us close together, to make us unified around the person and work of Jesus, and that friendships are formed, and they grow and they flourish because of our love for one another as we see the the beauty of Christ displayed in each other uniquely and yet uh, consistently, we pray. God, I pray that as we go through this next uh, section in Acts, that uh, you would display for us again the worth of Christ. Um, Let good and kindred go, this mortal life also, is the song written by Luther, and we see some of that displayed this morning in the Apostles. We pray that we would take up that mantle, that our zeal for you and our love for those who are um, toying with the precipice of hell uh, would be a drive for us, that we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't wither in the, in the face of some pushback, but that we would be steadfast and, like Christ, have our faces set like flint to preach an accurate and bold gospel calling everyone to repent and to be reconciled to God while there is still yet time. That we wouldn't be deterred by who we're talking to, but that we would trust in the sovereignty of God who alone changes hearts and who has commanded us to be faithful to the message. And we pray that a little bit more of that stealing of the heart would happen this morning as we go through what we see here in this passage. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Uh, we are in Acts 5, and and you're saying at this point, still in Acts, but I say to you, at least it's not Leviticus. (laughs) All right, thank you. I I didn't say that joke already, so so it wasn't that. Okay, last week we discussed in the earlier parts of Acts chapter 5 how the Holy Spirit had humiliated the Sadducees, through the miraculous deliverance of the apostles by one angel, one angel, uh, had broken them out of the public prison with armed guards, the whole thing. And they went out to the, t- the, the temple again and were preaching in the exact same place that they'd been arrested, the exact same message. Um, the council had given them a command previously. Remember, this, is a, this will be the second time they're in front of the Sanhedrin. They give, they'd given them a, a command previously not to teach in this name, right? Which would be the name of Jesus. Uh, was the action of the apostles that led to their arrest, was that action disobedience to the council? Yes. 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 Had the apostles told the council that they would be disobeying their command? Yes. Yes. By saying what? Is it better to follow man's commands or God's? Is it better to follow man or God? You decide. Implicitly, we're going to follow God, right? It's going on there. If you are in authority and people are looking at you to lead, to provide uh, uh, you know, order, 
Can that kind of insubordination be tolerated? Can it? Oh, well, you know, we look at that as weak leadership, don't we? Uh, In the first encounter with the Sanhedrin, it was a matter of authority. By whose authority are you doing these things? Here, it's a matter of their authority, right? Death uh, was not in view in the previous inquiry that they had. Here, we will see it's very much in view. But here the apostles were in the temple preaching after being released by the angel. And Luke tells us that the church, especially the apostles, were highly esteemed by the people. So when the captain of the guard comes to them, does he come in force? Do you remember? He came with a soldiers. He came with a bunch of soldiers. But somebody said last time that he asked them nicely. Right? He didn't come... To, to impose, he didn't put him in chains, didn't do any of that. He said, can you come with us? Why would he do that? They were scared of the people. They were scared of, the people. They were scared of being stoned by the people. And they didn't want a rebellion on their hands. All right. Did the apostles go? Yes. Why would they do that? Because they know that they, um, they need to spread the gospel to that council. Okay, so they're looking at the council as a witnessing opportunity. Mm-hmm. <coughs> they're, they're also submitting to government where it doesn't conflict with submitting to God. Ah, so two things going on here. They submit when they're asked by the authorities to go with them because that doesn't conflict with what God's told them to do. But when the government or the leaders tell them, don't preach in this name, they say, we can't do that. And that goes against what So they submit when it's possible to do that and obey God. Come with us. But they don't submit whenever it causes them to violate what God has commanded. Go into all the earth and preach the gospel. When the leaders say, don't do this, they've got a higher command on that issue. Plus, there's the added thing of maybe, who knows if God would grant them repentance and forgiveness. And he does. Some on the council. We see later in Acts that that there are those who come to faith who are in leadership. All right, look at verse, starting verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Let's stop there for now. So here they are before the entire council. And this included a majority of the Sadducees are on the council. Remember the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And they didn't believe in miracles. 
and they apparently had depression issues. All right. <laughs> but we'll see in a minute, there are also a minority faction of Pharisees on the council. And we'll see that, see that here in a little bit. Um, as head spokesman, the high priest is asking the questions. What does he accuse the apostles of doing? What, what's the problem here? What's he accuse them of doing? Doing what they told them not to do and bringing uh, the blame of Jesus' death on us. So there's two things. One, you've defied what we told you not to do. You've, you've done it anyway, which is teach in, the, in this name, right? That, we'll get to that in a second. It's very important. Uh, not, you, you've defied us by continuing to preach and teach in this name. And the second thing is, you seek to bring this man's blood on us. So, why is that a big deal? I mean, they were just enforcing the law, right? Why would they care? What are, the, what are they charging the apostles with trying to do? You're seeking to bring this man's blood on us. It's, uh, the, they're in governmental power, and so if they're saying who Jesus is, who really is, and it's their fault that this occurred, mm -hmm. then it's undermining their authority. It undermines their authority if they did crucify the Messiah. Okay, if people believe that, that will undermine their authority. Is there something else going on? Levitically, if that can be used as a word. You're making us appear unclean. What is uh, bringing the blood upon them? Have we heard that phrase before? In Leviticus. What do we call that? His blood be upon us and upon our children. What are they saying? We're responsible for what? They say hanging him on a tree. What are they talking about? Murder. If someone is responsible for murder, what's the consequence under Levitical law? Death. Death. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a man's life for a man's life. What are they afraid of? Death. Afraid of death, right? If the charge is right, that he was an innocent man, and we're responsible for the death of this man, then you're arguing to the people that the entire council that, that approved it, pushed for it, the high priest pushed for it, should be executed, taken out and stoned. Are they? Is that what the apostles are pushing for? No. 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 They don't want to kill the council. They want them saved. Right? And how do we know this? What's his response that clues you into that? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. It, it includes everybody. It includes everybody. To give repentance. Now, just, there's a theological issue there. To give repentance and forgiveness for sins. Look at the language carefully. What does he not say there? What, 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 does he, what does the high priest specifically not say? He never says the name of Jesus. 
What else does he not? I mean, what would be the logical question to ask in front of everybody after the recent events that have happened? You got, a, you got guys who are in a 12. This is not a small group, one guy with a spoon digging out. You got 12 guys. Oh, how'd you get out? How'd you get out? No reference to that whatsoever. Why do you think that is? They don't want to know. They don't want to know. They don't want to hear the evidence they of that. It anyways, it was an angel. And they wouldn't believe it anyways because it was an angel. So why even bother asking the question? It's much better to put your head in the sand. Um, he doesn't use the name Jesus. He says, in this name or this man. Why do you think that is? There's some of that. Using the name actually gives him some kind of uh, credibility. Um, they also just want to refer to him as a man because that's... At, that oh, that's good. As yeah, as a, they refer to him as a man because they say he's not divine. He's not God. He's just a man. They're actually, and this may be an indication of, of something that developed later in the rabbinical writings, the name Jesus is meticulously omitted in rabbinical writings. There was a, there was a, a curse, a, 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 an orthodox pharisaical ban uh, on using the name of Jesus because it was considered blasphemous to even use his name. They, they elevated their hatred of him to even using his name is blasphemy. And there's some indication that's going on or starting to happen here. Is it any relation to the Jewish practice of the time that when a rabbi was trained up and then taught, they say, I come in the name of this rabbi who has trained me, and that these guys are kind of doing a similar thing, say, I'm in the name of Jesus? Sure. Uh, there may be some of that. There may be some of that. But they're, they're, they may be co-opting that practice to display. I mean, you, you see it even in the Old Testament, the idea of um, honoring the name those who blaspheme the name should be, you know, referring to the name of God. And so they're, they may be co-opting that practice a little bit, but adding more to it because of who Christ is. But, they're, but the Pharisees, or, or certainly the, the Jewish leaders at the time, and then certainly after A.D. 90 is, is, is kind of when you see uh, it more um, in writing that that's going on, there's this idea of... Um, of not using the name because of, uh, of, of considering it blasphemy. Um, what's the response, uh, what's the response of Peter? What is, how does he say it? What's the first thing he says? Must have, been have we seen this before? <laughs> yeah. He says it a little bit more, uh, a little bit more succinctly here. One thing I would like to note, throughout church history, that sentiment or this quote by Peter has been used by martyrs going to their deaths. It has also been used by power-hungry popes exerting their influence on secular leaders. Uh, the thing we want to remember is if we're going to take this approach, we better know what the will of God is. Right? Uh, it's not the will of my feelings it's not the will of my desires. It's what is the will of God. And, and how do we know that? 
How do we know what the will of God is here for Peter and the apostles? They got a direct command. It's in red. Go into all the world. Uh, how do we know what the will of God is? Because we have red written down. Because we have red written down and black and white too. So, because it's all the word. So John one helps us there. The angel specifically, when he broke them out of prison, said to go back. To and we know that because it's written down. Um, yes. They had been given a direct command, but it was just a further command of what Jesus had already told them before. So, anyway. So, Peter and the apostles give a summary of their message. And the summary is, again, the guilt of the Jewish leaders for the death of Jesus, the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, His giving of repentance and forgiveness in Jesus, and their credibility as witnesses. What is Peter doing here? Why is he doing this? What is he saying to them? He's presenting the gospel. He's presenting the gospel, and then what's he doing to them? Condemning? Sort of. But what's the implication? In a good way, condemning. But yes, he's laying out the, the ability for them to have repentance and forgiveness. He's also he's presenting their way out. He's presenting their way out. He's presenting repentance and forgiveness. He's inviting them into to repent, right? He's inviting them to join the church, to, to be a complete Israel, we may say. There's not as much condemnation as there is in fact. Right. There's not as much condemnation as there is um, fact. So he is inviting them to repent and receive forgiveness. God has given the Holy Spirit to those who obey him, Peter says. So obey him by repenting and you too can have the Holy Spirit. Is that, is that what he's saying? So the council thinks logically. They, 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 they assess all of the evidence that's before them with what's recent events. And in a moment of clarity uh, and rational decision-making, they do what? They get enraged. They get enraged and want to kill them. Well, because they're still, still trying to, they're still trying to save themselves. They're still under the if if they, if by accepting what they say is true, they've basically condemned their worldly bodies because right. they've now admitted we committed murder. Right. So they have to and look at the cross reference for when they say you're trying to bring this man's blood upon us. It uh -huh. goes to Matthew twenty-seven twenty-five. Right. Which and which actually says. Uh, when Pilate was asking him um, uh, about Barabbas and he washed his hands, this, uh, 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 the Sadducees actually said, um, like, his blood be upon us and our children. And our children, that's right. So they actually asked for it. Yeah. And, then, and so now the apostles are asking them to live up what they asked. You know, basically. you made the deal. These were the terms. Yeah. There were witnesses to the deal. But that's not what the apostles are asking for. No. They're saying, you made a rash vow. <laughs> right? And Christ provides forgiveness for the rash vow. This is a First Samuel reference that we did Wednesday. But if you read it from the, the Sadducees' perspective on Peter's response, he says, the God of our fathers, which says, you know, mm -hmm. including them, he's trying to include Right, them. right. They're looking, okay, now you're including us in all of this. Yeah. And then God exalted him, 
and repentance and forgiveness of our sins. We are witnesses to these things. And so the whole, so is the Holy Spirit who God has given to those who obey Him. So they must not be obeying God, and they, if they were, they would be receiving something they didn't believe in, which was a spirit. Right, right. So it's a basic uh, fundamental challenge to their whole worldview mm-hmm. here. And they have no answer, so the response is get mad and say, and kill them. And, you know, I was going to make a reference to recent events, but I'm not going to. Love Trump's hate. All right. Um, you have here a, um, a theological um, pushback because the Sadducees would not believe the testimony of the resurrection. And you have, as Eric mentioned, a political pushback because the messianic message only serves to confirm that the Christians were dangerous to their way of life, to their holdings. All right. That's all wonderful. They're going to, uh, they're going to kill them now. That's what, that's what we see. But in verse 34, something happens. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, uh, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So who's Gamaliel? Pharisee. A Pharisee. He's an attorney. That's right. He's more of a philosopher, I guess, but that's probably hand in hand. Um, he gave orders. Now, who would normally give orders in this kind of procedural setting? The high priest. The high priest. Does the high priest object? Uh, 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 wait a minute. No. They were taking out. And how long does he say? A little while. How long does he think he needs to convince them otherwise? This is a man who's confident in his authority and in his influence on the council. And he's actually, uh, at this time, we, we, we have some other writings about him. Gamaliel I, he's referred to in several, pa- uh, several places. When, when Luke says he's a man held in honor, it's, again, it's a characteristic understatement of Luke of what's going on. This guy was the man in Israel at the time. Uh, there were two schools 
of, that, they, that they trained in, the, the elites would train in, and he was the teacher of one of them. Uh, he was the son or grandson of the famous Jewish philosopher Hillel. The, uh, the prime of Gamaliel's influence was about this time in history, um, we, we see from, from the uh, Jewish writings. And after the fall of Jerusalem, his grandson, Gamaliel II, would be president of the council in Jamnia. They moved from Jerusalem to Jamnia because Jerusalem is in rubble. Um, and that's a pretty big deal uh, historically. Uh, it, it's said of Gamaliel in the Jewish writing, uh, the Mishnah, when Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. That's just a little hyperbole about the significance of this man. Christians know Gamaliel best through his pupil, Paul. Paul learned at the feet of Gamaliel. And we'll see that later. Um, so although the, the Pharisees were the minority on the council, Gamaliel was highly esteemed, and it seems like he knew that. Uh, he gave the order for the men to go outside, and he gave the order for a little while not really thinking he needed much time to convince them not to go through with this rash uh, murdering of the apostles. All right. He references several previous incidents of zealous movements that ultimately led to nothing. Um, he's giving the voice of moderation here, and he's using past history. And there's some debate on... What is he talking about? The, the guy he mentions, Theodos, is, is uh, there's a guy that, of, a, of the same name who led like a huge faction. He says only 400. Um, so there's some debate on what he's talking about. Josephus tells us that there were several uprisings, so it's really not beyond the pale to think that there was a guy with the same name who led a smaller contingent that he's... So, I mean, if you run into arguments that say, oh, Luke got it wrong, balderdash. Uh, it's, it's, all, it's all in there, and Luke's closer to the events than we were, so I'm going with what he said. So anyway, um, so you have uh, him referring to these zealous movements that ultimately led to nothing. He's working off of a sound rabbinic principle that's, that went like this. Any assembling together that is for the sake of heaven shall in the end be established, but any that is not for the sake of heaven shall not in the end be established. And he is basically repeating that principle and applying it here. And while that's true, do you find it a little ironic? What's just gone on? And based on recent events, where do you think God is siding? They already imprisoned them, and miraculously they got out, so it's already pushing past what their capabilities are. And they're out in the temple every day. People are freaking out over how awesome the healing stuff is going on, and they're waiting for the shadow to fall, you know, to, to, to be thinking that they're going to get healed that way. There's miraculous, God-empowered stuff going on, not so much in the council. You don't, there's, it's so much not going on in the council that they don't even believe that it exists. Where is God moving? He's moving in the Christians. He's moving with, with, with the apostles. Yeah. Plus, they said, oh, 400 people here, you know, just hundreds. This is thousands, 3,000 people 
believed uh, at, on, I don't think it was Pentecost. It was Pentecost. Okay. But I mean, that's, we're talking about thousands. Yep. And I mean, this is, time is already passed and it's only getting bigger. Right, right. So maybe, um, maybe they should heed this advice. All right. So already the council are finding themselves fighting against the obvious will of God. Um, they heed his advice not to kill them, but what do they do to them? They beat them. They beat them, and, and some translations would say they flogged them. Do you know what is involved there? This is a warning, punishment. Just a light warning. <laughs> Don't go against us again. There was a term that was used for this kind of flogging, uh, 40 lashes minus one. Forty, uh, 40 lashes, I think in Deuteronomy it talks about not going over 40 to you know, not kill somebody that way. Um, and so they, they held back one just in case they miscounted. And so they thought they'd err on the side of mercy there. Uh, and the way they would do it is that they would, you'd be bare-chested, if you're a guy, you'd be bare-chested on, on your knees, and they would, um, they would uh, give you one stripe on the chest for every two on the back. See, because it worked out in threes with 39. It's kind of a mathematical thing. And people died from this. And they're doing this to all 12 of them. Can you imagine that? They're being beaten this way. Uh, and it's still a, a cruel punishment. Uh, at the end of this ordeal... They were again warned not to speak in the name of Jesus and let go. Well, that should teach them. So as they're walking away from this, and I don't think it takes much imagination to think through what visually they would be looking like as they're walking away from this. What are they doing? Rejoicing. They're rejoicing. Are they psycho? They're rejoicing. Would you be rejoicing? Does that make sense to you? Well, just from the perspective of they were about to be killed and now they're not dead. <laughs> so it's the lesser of two weevils. Um, you have men bleeding and weak from this ordeal, rejoicing. Not that they didn't die. What are they rejoicing over? It's, it's emboldened. It's emboldened them. What did he say? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Didn't he say that to them? What else did they do? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Did they do that to Jesus too? When they were, they had the trial that they were going to beat him. Mm -hmm. He was trying to let Jesus go. Right. Pilate had him flogged yeah, instead. Let's, let's do this and just let him go. And little, that wasn't enough. Little, little different in that kind of flogging, though. That was a Roman flogging, and it, and it, it, it was a scourging. Yeah. But yes, the intent was. Let them see him beat up. Maybe that'll satisfy their bloodlust. It didn't. But, but yeah, that was the intent, I think, of Pilate. I think you're right. 
here they're rejoicing. And what else is their response? Every day they go out and teach. And, and notice the, there's a chiastic structure here that Luke uses um, here at the end. He says, um, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So if you were to chart it out in literary fashion, temple would be A, house would be B, they did not cease teaching would be B, and preaching A. So you see the A, B, B, A construction there. So there's teaching from house to house, there's preaching in the temple, and they did it every day. This is their life. We would rather obey God than man. What would you have us do? First uh, Peter 4, real quickly. Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange, something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the, who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will... Let me read that again. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This was written by one of the men who was beaten by the council here. Being forced to bake a cake or take a picture, while it is a step toward more intense marginalization away from the freedoms traditionally shared in this country, ain't 40 lashes minus one. Do we glory in suffering when it is necessary for the sake of the gospel? Notice that he doesn't say glory in suffering for being a jerk. Right? Philip says this from the pulpit, and I think he's dead on. The gospel is offensive enough. Let's not add to it. We don't glory in suffering for being a jerk. In fact, one of the things he says uh, is, um, is don't suffer as a meddler. And uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, and, and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, mind your own business. And to work with your hands as we instructed you. In 2 Thessalonians 3, he says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. 
1 Timothy 5.13 says, Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. The, the constant refrain is, even in the little things, let's strive to live peaceable lives and not cause chaos. Why? Because that just makes for a more harmonious community? Okay, yes. But more importantly, that the gospel's not hindered. That the gospel's not hindered before a watching world. If we suffer for being a busybody or meddling, shame on us. But if we're not putting obstacles in front of the gospel and are mocked, shamed, yelled at during Thanksgiving dinner, if we are taxed more heavily because we identify with Christ, let's not start wearing safety pins over that. Rock-ribbed Christianity takes that and says with the Moravians, may the Lamb receive the reward for His suffering. Um... If it comes, when it comes, I guess my call to all of us is to be distinctly different from the way that the current generation responds to adversity. We're not snowflakes. We're called to be steeled and confident and hopeful and rejoicing in the face of trials, not to melt down the quiver. Uh, I'll say it again, I said it last week, steal your hearts now. Be faithful in learning your Bibles, be faithful uh, in prayer, be faithful in loving one another and uh, training your heart daily to be um, uh, drifting toward what is eternal and not toward what is temporary. It's a marathon, and it involves daily training. And we see the, the ideal, the goal here, is in the face of these things to rejoice because the cause of Christ is exalted, even though we may bear the marks of Jesus in our bodies. None of us has been called to that yet. Comments, questions? I'll pray. I have no um, understanding, really, of what the apostles did here, Father. How do you rejoice in the face of that kind of um, punishment? But I trust that with us, as you did with them, your spirit will move. As it did in them to cause them to see the greater joy in Jesus rather than the sadness of the pain in their bodies. We have no concept of that here. Would you help us to be more bold in pursuing holiness in pursuing um, men for Christ in spite of maybe their hateful words toward us because of it. 
there are men out there, men and women, made in the image of God who are destined for much more than 40 lashes minus one. Would you give us hearts to endure that kind of suffering so that they would not suffer eternally because of the suffering that Christ endured for us? That requires a supernatural love, a supernatural otherworldliness that puts a sheen, a glow on the gospel. It calls men everywhere to repent and be reconciled to God. I thank you for this group. I thank you that they're not snowflakes. I thank you that even now your spirit is stealing their hearts for the days to come. They may be far off, they may be near, we don't know. But nevertheless, we need to be always ready to give an answer for the hope that's in us. It's hope. We pray that you would remind us of that daily as we seek your face. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Either the 9th or the 10th, we're trying to figure out our kids' 